Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Heavenly Father, thank you for your uh, great love. Uh, that your great love uh, surrounds us and holds us uh, and just keeps us um, that when we fail your love doesn't fail that that when we're on top form your love hasn't changed Father that you always love us and that we always belong to you and that your love always belongs to us so Father just uh, invigorate us with your Holy Spirit right now help us to engage with you um, help us to see uh, more of Christ and him crucified in, in, in everything in life that we engage with. Um, help us to be more like you. Help us to see you that as we see you, we become like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today we are preemptively celebrating the Feast of St. Barnabas. So we've been doing this thing where we've kind of started using the lectionary. The lectionary, if you don't know, is basically a set of prescribed texts uh, that the whole of the uh, Anglican Communion follows. Um, so we, we have been using the same scriptures every Sunday that you know may, maybe about a third of the Christian church will be using. And there's a certain amazing thing of a, a, a unity, but not a uniformity. So we'll be using the same scriptures, but obviously we'll be saying different things hopefully uh, theologically agreeable but we'll be saying different things and so we're carrying on that, that and we've been observing some of the church calendar as well so uh, may w- was absolutely chock full of, of, of church calendar events and they're things that across the world everybody all christians are celebrating these things and so st barnabas is another one of those church calendar things but uh, in, in true uh, barnabian style it's not widely observed it's quite a humble uh, feast. Um, not many people will be observing this feast. It's actually tomorrow. The feast day is tomorrow. Uh, but because we've kind of adopted St. Barnabas as our patron saint, um, it feels right that we should honour honor that day. So because St. Barnabas' day is tomorrow, it's always on the 11th, so whatever day that is. If it falls on a Sunday, the lectionary texts are great because uh, they that you know we'll be very familiar with them they're all about Barnabas um but it's tomorrow so the lectionary text for today are really really obscure <laughs> so the other week Steve was saying it's amazing like these lectionary texts they just all really hold together and they, they talk about what I want to talk about which is phenomenal well today the lectionary texts were rubbish so the old testament reading was from Samuel it's the bit where Israel wants their own king and God gets really cheesed off with them don't know how you relate that to Barnabas uh, the, the, the epistles text was from Paul where he's complaining about being beaten up a lot. Again, a bit vague. Um, the gospel text is all a bit is about the bit where um, they accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan. Again, difficult text. And then the psalm was ace because it's about praising God who lifts up the lowly. So obviously out of all those texts I went with the one about Satan. Um, can't beat a good bit of preaching about Satan. Um, so today using the gospel text about satan i'm going to hopefully 
endeavour to convey something to do with the spirit of Barnabas that we've been so sort of caught up in. That's not Barnabas's personal spirit, but the Holy Spirit that kind of enabled Barnabas to be who he was. And also, uh, Steve's laid down a gauntlet of 34 minutes. Um, so I'm going to wrestle a text about Satan, the Feast of St Barnabas, and 34 minutes. And hopefully uh, we'll get out of this alive. So, just to recap on, on Barnabas then, the sort of things that we, we were covering. Uh, Barnabas was the one who stood with the outsider. He was the champion of the outsider. And so, we first engaged with this idea when, when he stands with Paul. But he's not Paul at that point, he's Saul. And, and we think, we have this sanitised idea of the Bible most of the time, or at least I do. Where it's like, oh, he was standing up for, for the guy that was a bit misunderstood. No, no, the guy that was misunderstood was Paul. He was going into churches, dragging people off, women, children, dads, fathers, whatever, and getting them thrown into prison and beaten up. He wasn't a nice guy. He was very zealous. He was very passionate. He thought he was doing God a favour, and he was this guy that was persecuting the church, so much so that it actually took Jesus himself to come and say, hold on, back up a minute, and that's what stopped Saul, okay? So for Barnabas to stand alongside this guy, it's a risky business. Because he didn't know this guy. He, he genuinely didn't. He didn't have a long relationship with him. It was like, okay, I, I see the gold in this guy, so I'm going to trust him not to let me down, not to betray the trust. I'm inviting him into the inner circle, and this could go drastically wrong. He could, get every, he could find out everybody and get them all arrested. So when we talk about the outsider, it's not a cosy outsider. Oh, he's doing something nice for the poor guy. Because sometimes we get into that condescension, don't we? He was a very, very dangerous outsider that, that Barnabas stood up for. Barnabas put his reputation on the line for this guy, who was a risky business, okay? He stood aside. Barnabas stood aside. So he stood with the outsider and he stood aside. As you read through Acts, what you see is it's Barnabas and, Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul. And then all of a sudden it becomes Paul and Barnabas. And then it just becomes Paul. Barnabas fades into the background, but he's the guy that brought Paul in. And he does it quite happily. There's this one brilliant bit where they're, they're preaching the gospel in, in a town. And, and, and then the people run out and say, oh, it, it, it's, um, it's Apollo and his messenger. And they refer to... Barnabas as Apollo, you know, Apollo, the good-looking, uh, vigorous, vital god of, of the Greeks, and his messenger Hermes, this little peon of Apollo, that's Paul. But then Barnabas rushes out and says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong, and gives the stage to Paul to preach. So Barnabas stands with the outsider, and it's not just a nice, sweet outsider, it's a difficult, risky outsider. He stands aside and he gives the platform to somebody else. He sets it up and he denies himself. He, he gives of himself to this other person. He gave up his position in the Jerusalem church to go and help Antioch. When there was a trouble in Antioch, a new fledging hub of Christianity, who did they send? They sent one of their best leaders and it was Barnabas to go sort out the problems. So he gives himself up for others. So he stands with the outsider, he stands aside and he stands through failure with people. He doesn't... Um, just cut them off. Oh, you know, uh, there's this thing that goes around on Facebook quite a lot and I hate it. It's all about like who you surround yourself with. You know, surround yourself only with winners. Mm. And, you know, I'll call that BS. That's not how Jesus did it. He surrounded himself in losers and he made them winners. Yeah. He was a positive influence on them. 
Barnabas doesn't eject people when they fail. He hangs on to them, even though that means he has to go toe-to-toe with influential people. He'll back them. So with Paul, he backed Paul. But when Mark failed, he failed them in Cyprus on a missions trip. And Paul was like, we ain't taking him anywhere again. And Barnabas has a showdown with his best mate, Paul. He says, look, we can't. the same reason why I backed you, Paul, is why I'm backing him. And if you can't see the cognitive dissonance with you rejecting him, then I can't have you. I'm going to go with him. And the thing that he does with Marcus is he takes him back to Cyprus. Where does he take Mark? The place of his failure. And he helps him. And then, like Steve kind of extrapolated, you know, Mark becomes the guy that Paul looks to at the end of his life in the, in the, in the epistles to Timothy. And the interesting thing was, anecdotal evidence uh, suggests that it was in Cyprus that um, Barnabas was martyred. And now he's the patron saint of Cyprus. So he stands with the outsider, he stands aside and he stands through failure. So that's just a quick recap. So how, how, how are we going to uh, engage with the scriptures about Satan and talk about Barnabas or in- imbibe that sort of spirit? Um, so first of all, let's read the gospel lectionary text for today. So it's uh, Mark 3 and it's uh, verse 20 to the end of the chapter. It just says this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. Uh, so already, there's something already happened in Mark. There's already been these clouds, uh, crowds uh, gathering. Then Jesus entered a house, and again crowds gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven their sins, but every slander they utter, and every, and all, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will, be, will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Uh, So it's quite a potent text. It's quite a provocative text. Um, So first of all, let's just do a little bit of context. I love my context, don't I? So the Gospel of Mark, I don't know if you've ever sat down and read it. Uh, While I was kind of just sitting with this text... Mark's gospel is incredible, you know, we've heard everybody say it's like incredibly action-packed. It's always, and then something happened, and then this other thing happened, and then something else happened, and then there's no kind of, uh, there's no space in Mark's gospel for big monologues by Jesus teaching anything. You know, you have five major monologues by Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, and pretty much all of the gospel of John is a massive monologue. Um, But Mark's gospel just, bam, 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 bam. This is like the uh, Michael Bay version of Jesus, you know, the Passion of the Christ almost. It's like this is, this is the one with the big destructive robots and dinosaurs and, and scanty clad women probably because it's a Michael Bay film. Um, 
but there's always something happening. And the thing is, and I'd never noticed this before, but it's always antagonistic. Everything is against Jesus. The crowds are against Jesus. There's something about the crowds even that are a hindrance to Jesus. It says in this text, you know, um, he couldn't, him and his disciples couldn't even eat because the crowds were imposing on them. There isn't this kind of edge of compassion there it's really kind of jesus against everything his family are against him the teachers of the law from jerusalem are against him everything is pushing against and pushing up against jesus so there's this 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 uh, latent antagonism within the text of mark uh, so mark deliberately i believe sets jesus against things so like everything's provocative so the calling of like uh Levi, the tax collector, it was a real major incident just before this. And, and it's almost like he does it in the face of what everybody that would say, no, that's not a good idea. So, and and there's, the, there's the healing of the man with the withered hand. So Jesus deliberately goes to the synagogue to preach and, then he, and, he, and he calls this man up. He doesn't have to do that. He could have healed the guy outside, somewhere where no one sees. But it's kind of like he looks at his crowd and he sees, oh, this is going to wind them up a treat. <laughs> Come up here, let's just take some time. Yes, look at this guy. What day is it? Yes, it's the Sabbath. So if I do anything right now, it's going to be a little bit inflammatory. So let's do this thing. This is the Jesus that we get in Mark. He, he's antagonistic. He's confrontational. Um, and sometimes we don't like that. We like our, our Jesus all meek and mild. Um, but actually, he is deliberately roiling, roiling people up. He's, he's rubbing people up the wrong way. The sort of things that get said about Jesus, it's not just, oh, Jesus has authority. It's that Jesus has more authority than those guys. So it doesn't just establish Jesus' greatness. It establishes that it's greatness over and against something else. There's always this, this confrontation. He's against the Pharisees and the Herodians. Like They make it clear. It's like, and these guys, after Jesus did this, were really upset about it. And they go off to plan something against Jesus. There's always something against Jesus. Even John the Baptist's disciples. Why aren't your disciples fasting? It's like Jesus is the ultimate outsider. He's alienated from everybody. You know, John the Baptist would think there's probably an ally there, but no, his disciples have an issue with Jesus. Jesus' family, no, there's a bit of issue there. The crowds that are following him, well, they just want a piece of him. You know, they're encroaching on his space. There's this massive antagonism that's building up in the text. His family think that he's out of his mind, and they want to seize him. And the word that gets used there isn't just kind of, come on, Jesus, let's take you home, mate. You know, you need to just chill out a minute. You know, let's go get some quiet time. It's the same word that Mark uses to arrest someone, to lay hold of them violently, to bind them up, to hold them down, to constrain them. That's what his family want. They think he's literally kind of out of his mind. Like these aren't, these aren't friendly terms. These aren't familial terms. These aren't loving, compassionate terms. People want to seize him. Even his very own people want to seize him and shut him up. And so Jesus is being painted in the Gospel of Mark as the ultimate outsider. Everybody's against him. In Matthew, in Luke, in John, you know, there's a little bit of kind of kinship with John the Baptist. You know, his family, he's a little bit more forgiven towards his family. You know, so there's, there's some great dialogues in John about his, you know, Mary. And it's really forgiving. But in Mark's Gospel, it's very kind of, very stark, very polemical. You know, in, in other Gospels, Jesus has compassion on the crowds. But in Mark, it seems like they're an imposition on him. And it's very clear. The text makes this very clear. They couldn't even eat. The crowds were pushing in on him so much. 
And the same with it is, is the healings that go on in Mark, because there's always something going on in Mark. The healings aren't so much, and Jesus had compassion, and he was gentle, and he reinstated this person, or he, he, or he sat with the woman in the dirt, and he protected her. It's like, I am coming against something else, something that's bigger than what's going on here. It's like, I'm at war with the kingdom of Satan, and everything around me represents the kingdom of Satan. I am the solitary point of light in this darkness. And so when I heal someone, or when I drive out demons, it's not, it's not this loving action towards the person it is, it's defeating the powers of darkness. That's the great background story of Mark. It's not this person-to-person relationship. It's all about, I am conquering what's going on. In uh, 1 John, it talks about Jesus coming to destroy the works of the enemy. And that's very much what's going on in Mark. Everything. Jesus is breaking down the mindsets that are driving people. Jesus is breaking down the kingdom of darkness when it physically manifests in demons and all that sort of thing. So in in chapter 1, you see the man has an impure spirit and it's in the synagogue on a Sabbath. And they're all very contentious places and contentious times. And the healing is a confrontation with the power of darkness. And what it does is it establishes Jesus' authority. So this is where the people say, oh, look at him, he teaches as one with authority, not like those other guys. So over and against. So that original healing establishes his power, his authority, over and against the powers of darkness. In chapter 2, the paralyzed man, you know, he comes down through the roof because the crowds are filling. Jesus is trying to get some time away and the crowds impose upon him. There's not even enough space for this paralysed man to get in, so they lower him down through the roof. But what does Jesus do? Does Jesus simply heal the guy? No, he does something really contentious. We know that he could just say, be healed. But he says, oh, I'm going to forgive you now, because the, crowd, the people in the crowd are watching him, and he knows what's in them, and so he does something that's going to rile them up. He doesn't do something nice and quiet or, or anything like that. He does something deliberately to provoke, and he forgives him. And what this shows us is that it establishes his authority in line with Yahweh. Because mm. Yahweh is the only one who is able to forgive sin. Mm. And so Jesus, by saying, I'll forgive this man, and that's what's going to get him up and walk. Mm. They're like, wait a minute, yeah. you can't do that. And he says, yes, I can. And to prove that I can, I will heal this guy as well. Mm. And he's establishing, my authority is over and against yours. My authority is that of the God of the Old Testament, the Father of Israel, Yahweh, and I am his son. In chapter 3, the man with the withered hand. The healing is a deliberate challenge. It's staged. You know, it's like having, um, it's like guerrilla theatre or something on the street where somebody's trying to draw a crowd deliberately and provoke a response. It's It's genius. Man with the withered hand. And he establishes that what he's doing, he says, is it not good to heal and bring life on the Sabbath? So he's establishing, one, that he has authority, two, that his authority is in line with Yahweh, and three, the things that he's doing are good things. And when he talks about good, he's not just saying it's nice. He's saying the same sort of good as in when God said over creation, it is good. So when he says, is it not good to heal someone on the Sabbath. He's not just saying it's a nice thing to do for this guy. He's saying this is a work of life-giving creation that Yahweh did in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So all of these stories point to what Jesus is considering himself. He is one with authority in the line of Yahweh and it's recreation that he's about. So he's butting up against all the chaos of darkness Mm -hmm. and he's bringing a new creation. He's bringing recreation. 
So that's why there's so much conflict in Mark, because it's a new creation breaking in. And Jesus is the spear tip of that new creation. And everything else is against him. And so now we've got that context. Now we move on to the Satan. Now this story is fascinating. Let's just read it again. Then Jesus entered the house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So notice now the antagonistic language is there. It didn't need to say that they weren't able to do something, but the crowd is obviously in imposition. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. And again, remember that take charge is arrest him, bind him up. So notice what the powers of darkness do. They bind things, don't they? We see that, we know that word from the demoniac, don't we? The binding of things. He is out of his mind, and the word out of his mind is also when people are not in their right mind. So we see that in other healings. Jesus is driving out these demons, and they're saying that he is this one with the demons. He deserves to be bound up. He is not in his right mind. So they're trying to say Jesus, already the text is preempting us to say, you know, he's in league with the devil. He's not of the good, he's of the bad. And the teachers of the law who came from Jerusalem. So first off, in verse 20 and 21, we have his family. And then it shifts. Who, who are his opponents now? Teachers of the law from Jerusalem. So he's never encountered guys from Jerusalem before. He's encountered the local teachers of the law in Capernaum, which is right up north. That'd be like saying, um, you know, so he's gone around and he's wound up the uh, teachers of the law from Newcastle. And he's in Sunderland. And then it's like this point he comes to. And then he's teaching in Harrogate. And then the teachers of the law from London come up. So these are the big head honchos that are coming up to see what's going on now. So he's had three chapters and he's winding them up and he's gradually working up the hierarchy. The teachers of the law from Jerusalem. And they come and say, he is possessed by Beelzebub. That's great. There's so many layers to this, by the way. Uh, The prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and he told them something. And then he tells them that they're never going to be forgiven, which is quite potent. Um... And then we return back to his family. There's this like sandwich. Because it's the family and it's the teacher's law. He deals with them and then he comes back to his family. So there's this weird little sandwich going on. Really what I want to do is is just deal with what he says to the teachers of the law. Because this is like just so so potent. So the, the, the sandwich or technical term is intercalation. I had to Google that. It sounds really smart though, doesn't it? If you edit this bit out, it'll make me sound really intelligent. So what the sandwich does is it, 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 it emphasises how on the outside he is, how alienated he is. It's not just the, the bad guys, you know, we paint the Pharisees out to be the bad guys, the teachers ought to be that, but it's even his own family. So this is, if Jesus couldn't be more alienated, because when it talks about family, the word isn't kind of my family, it's my people. Mm-hmm. Literally, it says, his people came to seize him. He, even his own people are against him, so he's really alienated to his own To his own people, he appears deluded and possessed. So the teachers of the law, what do they say? The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So it's just a good old-fashioned character assassination, isn't it? You know, so, so what do we need to set up? Well, we need to establish that this guy is all bad. So what can we do? Well, um, we'll associate him with the, with the worst bad we can think of, mm. Beelzebub. Now, um, you know, he may be doing these good things, but his heart is in a bad place. Because the thing is, the healing, they've already established that the healing is good. Mm. The man with the withered hand and the sin of God, the previous episode. 
but he might be doing good things, but he's doing it from a bad place. We cannot trust him. Even though he's doing the right stuff, we don't know his heart. So we think his heart is uh, bad. Uh, do we find ourselves doing this? Do we find that we discredit people who do positive things uh, by inferring their motivations or where they're coming from? They may well be filling your worthy cause here. They may well be helping the poor, but they're Muslims. They may well be um, establishing equal rights for women, but they're Republicans. They may well be setting up funds uh, to help the church, but they're conservatives. They may well be, they may well be uh, championing, championing um, lesser arms trade, but they're from, they're, they support Labour. Do we do that? Do we assassinate someone's character who's doing something good so that we don't have to say, actually, they could be on our side? Because yeah. what does Jesus say? On this very subject, his disciples run to him and say, There's some guys over there, <laughs> they're doing healing, but they ain't with us. Should we go and stop them, Jesus? Hey, whoever isn't against you is on your side. Mm. Jesus does not get fussy about it. You know, in the city, I've discovered that people won't work with God's coffee shop because God's coffee shop worked with Langerade. God's coffee shop is not allowed. To, it wasn't allowed to be hosted in the cathedral precincts because it worked with Langrade because they're Sikh. God's coffee shop isn't allowed under the Hope Coventry banner because of who they work with. It's a bit worrying, isn't it? To neutralise any opposition, those in power identify their opponents as being in league with the great enemy. So in the States, um, kind of liberals, uh, I'd probably suggest that we would fall into a more liberal cast of Christianity in general. Um, if they want to discredit someone, they'll say, that guy or that woman or that church is something to do with Donald Trump. They don't say that Donald Trump is a bad, bad man. Therefore, we can't trust them. In this country, depending on whether we're blue or red, well... You know, they're, they're, they're Tories. We can't trust them. They just want to step all over the poor. They can't be doing something good, surely. Or, you know, if you swing the other way, it's like, well, we can't trust them because they're virgin on being communists. You know, Jeremy Corbyn's in league with terrorists. How can you support that guy? So the great enemy could be terrorists, militant Islam, um, whatever you want. They say that Jesus is in league with Beelzebub. They say that Jesus is in league with someone that's Yahweh's great enemy. They don't just say he's in league with the Romans, which would be an obvious one, but they say he's in league with the great enemy of Israel from the time of creation. And so note this. This is a real subtle bit of rhetoric. Because by saying that Jesus is in league with Yahweh's great enemy, what are they saying about themselves? They're saying that they're on the side of right. We always identify ourselves on the side of right, and anybody that we dislike or we want to discredit, they're always on the side of wrong. Always works that way. We never say, hey, wait a minute, I'm probably on the side of wrong. You're probably right. <laughs> never works that way. 
I'm right, I have divine mandate for what I'm doing, you're wrong, you know, you do not, you're against Jesus in some way. So they are staking a claim on being in league with Yahweh. By saying that Jesus is in league with the devil, they're saying that they're in league with Yahweh. Yeah. This line here, I'm on this side and I'm right, everybody on that side of the line is wrong. You're out. That's what they're establishing. So this is really interesting. I went away, because oftentimes we just think uh, Beelzebub is just another name for Satan. Uh, and he has many names. Prince of Darkness, Prince of the Air, yada yada. Um, but actually, Beelzebub is actually a real real character in the Old Testament as well. And so it's really potent because Beelzebub is a god of Ekron. And, and, and then this is where in, in 1 Kings, where uh, nobody knows Yahweh in the nation of Israel anymore. And so they send out to this other god of Ekron. So Ekron will be the Philistines. So Israel's great enemy at the time. And then Elijah gets really ticked off. He's like, why are you doing that? Do you not think that God's voice can be heard in Israel? I'm right here. I'm the prophet of God. Come to me. And then they, so they send these troops to him. And then he incinerates them 50 by 50 each time. It's a really interesting layer of story because Jesus goes on to debunk that story as well later on. But we won't go there for the sake of time. See, I'm trying to keep on time. Um, so they are establishing, the teachers for Jerusalem are establishing themselves in line with a great hero of the Israelite faith, who destroys the enemies of Yahweh. They destroy physical people. This is what Elijah did. And you know, like, when uh, they go to Samaria, when uh, Jesus and the disciples go to Samaria, and John and James say, oh, well, they've rejected you, Jesus. Let's call down fire. Because they're evoking the same spirit of Elijah, which the teachers of Jerusalem say. Jesus says, you do not know what spirit you are of. So they're trying to align themselves, the teachers of Jerusalem are trying to align themselves with the destroyer of God's enemies. And Jesus is also trying to establish himself as the destroyer of God's enemies. It's just that they have a very different idea of who God is and who his enemies are. So in the previous thing where Jesus calls Levi, the teachers of the law from Jerusalem would say, well, Levi is a turncoat because he's been working with the oppressors. So they want to destroy Levi, because that's what they do. They destroy Yahweh's enemies. Jesus, on the other hand, destroys Yahweh's enemies by love. And he says to Levi, come and follow me. Which is why they're all riled up at the moment, and why his family think he's mad. So then, we've established that the teachers of Jerusalem think they're on the right side. They're on the side of light, and Jesus is in the side of darkness. We've established that when they think they're on the side of right, they think they're doing Yahweh's good work of destroying the enemies of darkness. But Jesus also considers himself destroying the enemies of darkness. It's just that he's got them in his sights. And it's not them that he's going to physically destroy, but their way of thinking. So what does Jesus say? This is genius, okay? It's like, it's like argumentative judo. Because what he does is he takes what they throw at him and he doesn't just come back with his own argument, but he takes what they throw at him and he reverses it on themselves. So you'll remember, Judo. So if you're coming at me, I'm going to use your momentum. So even if you're the biggest guy in the world, if I do it right, I'm going to use your force against you. So if a guy's running at me in Judo, like I'd turn and throw that guy by his own weight. Or if he's dragging me towards him, I get and then throw him that way. So, yeah, Jeremy will remember it from coming to Judah with us. 
And it is genius. I can't, I can't emphasize enough how brilliant this is. So first of all, what does Jesus say? Jesus called them over to him. So he hears what they're saying. He says, hey, come here. We're going to have this out. <laughs> Confrontation, right? So Jesus calls them over to him and begins to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end is come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up so that he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all of their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And this is because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Oh, man. So first of all, what Jesus points out is the logical flaw in their argument. We've already established that Jesus is doing a good thing. Healing is a good thing. Is it better to preserve life or not? And everybody says, you know, maybe a bit hesitantly, but yes, it is. So Jesus is doing a good thing. So he says, well, how can I be doing a good thing empowered by a bad thing? Doesn't make sense, guys. Sort out your logic first. So what does this do? First of all, it clarifies that everybody is in agreement that what he is physically doing is good. He's driving out Satan by saying, no, 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 I'm doing a good thing. So let's, we're, all on, we're all on the same page about that. What I'm doing is good. So he is doing the life-giving work of Yahweh. John 10.10, 10, I have come that all may have life. It's the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So Jesus is establishing, well, the things I'm doing are of Yahweh. So if I am doing Yahweh's work and you are opposing me, whose work are you doing? If I'm doing Yahweh's work and you're trying to stop me from doing that, whose work are you doing? Tables are flipped. They had a line in the sand, Mm. and they suddenly find that they're on the wrong side of their own line. Genius. So Jesus spins their critique around, and it's all come back on them. The second layer of the argument then, so he's dismissed them, and he's flipped the tables on them, and now they're on the wrong side of their own line. The second layer is a declaration of spiritual warfare. The end of the great enemy... So not just these guys, but the thing that's empowering them is in sight. Satan's kingdom is falling. This points to, this, this validates the fact that Jesus was the spear tip of the inbreaking of the new creation of the kingdom of God. Jesus was engaged in a war and he marshaled his people up until this point he's been calling his disciples and there's 12 of them he has a representative nation the 12 tribes of Israel it's a deliberate act he didn't choose 13 or 10 or 15 he chose a deliberately provocative number of 12 because I'm establishing a new nation of Israel and I'm going to war with my with my nation just that my warfare is completely different He's embarking on a conquest of an opposing kingdom, but it's not by might, 
It's not by power, but it's by the Spirit of the Lord. And this is really important. What's driving Jesus? Yahweh's Spirit. He's in line with the authority of Yahweh. He's doing the work of Yahweh. And he's driven by Spirit. So this declaration, he says, If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end is come. It's a declaration of intention by Jesus. Satan's end has come. And I am living proof. The third layer is a scathing critique on the religious nationalism that tries to maintain the status quo. By flipping the tables, they were saying he's of the devil. And he's, he's flipped it back. So who is doing the work of the devil? And the thing is, the language is deliberately provocative. What does he say, that they're, what does he say about Satan? He says that he has a kingdom and a house. What did Israel talk about in the Old Testament? They have the kingdom of David... And the house is the temple of the Lord. Where are they from? They're from the temple. So when Jesus starts talking in language of kingdoms and temples, he's deliberately evoking the nationalism of Israel. Because they're the kingdom of priests. The house of the Lord is the temple. This is language that's rife through the Old Testament. So Jesus isn't just arbitrarily picking domains for Satan to have that could be divided. And if uh, Satan's um, shopping mall is divided against itself, then it will fall. And if Satan's football stadium is divided against itself, it will fall. He deliberately chooses kingdom and house. If you look through the start of Mark, actually, the word house or household is really prevalent because it's this idea of a new temple breaking in. But anyway, that's for another day. So Jesus is embarking on this war and he is debunking this religious national myth that there is a line around Israel and everybody that's in Israel that just the right things is in they're God's people which the line the circle gets ever smaller because then it's just a temple clique and he's critiquing that that is going to fall because that is not of God the fourth layer is this quote from Isaiah so when he goes on to say in fact no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up he can, then he can plunder the strong man's house so Jesus is identifying him as the person that's tying up the strong man and then plundering. Plundering by bringing out the captives. Turn with me to Isaiah 49. So this is a deliberate quote that Jesus has thrown in their face. <coughs> can plunder, uh, verse 24, Isaiah 49, verse 24, can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you. Think about what Jesus is saying. He's evoking the scripture saying Yahweh is going to contend with those that contend with his Messiah. So who is Yahweh going to contention with? The temple priests, the teachers of the law from Jerusalem. Burn. And I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they'll be drunk on their own blood. So notice the connotations of the Eucharist there. Then all mankind will know that that I, the Lord, am your saviour and redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. So what a statement from Jesus. Right in their face. I mean, yeah, that's almost like, oh snap, drop the mic! It's like on a a YouTube video waiting to happen, is it? Jesus, it's like um, a rap battle or something. Which establishes Jesus' messianic credentials. And it also carries on this idea of um, Yahweh not actually deliberately fighting the enemies, but allowing the enemies to turn on themselves. So that whole thing is right through the text, isn't it? So it's like Satan turning on Satan, Beelzebub turning on Beelzebub. And Jesus, even the way he manages 
this situation is that he allows them just to fall flat on their face. He just takes their logic and flips it. And so all of a sudden, they're at the end of their own critique of Jesus. So it's this idea of evil falling on itself. You know, there's those ideas in Proverbs, you know, if you dig a pit, then you'll, you know, to, to waylay someone, you'll end up falling into that very pit. So sin has its own kind of end within itself. So notice that kind of the judo of, the judo of evil, it kind of ends up tripping itself up. And let's just deal with this text um, about the unforgivable sin. So we're talking about, so we all know the unforgivable sins, the imperious, the cruciatus, and the... No, wait a minute. Um, so, whoever... Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven and are guilty of an eternal sin. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but when I first heard about this, I was always a bit scared, right? Yeah. Well, there's... there's I don't know if I have or not. Um, You know, can there ever be something so bad that God cannot forgive it? Well, apparently, yeah, there is. But the problem is, is it's so vague. Whoever blasphemes against the Spirit, well, what's blasphemy against the Spirit? You know, the, the Holy Spirit's a jerk. I mean, have I just done the unforgivable sin? Or is it swearing? Or I don't know. It's so vague, and yet it seems kind of important, right? So you never know if you've ever done this thing, because it's so vague. Well, that could have been. I mean, I didn't, I didn't stand up in, I didn't lift my arms during worship today, and the Spirit was definitely here. Is the, is the Holy Spirit a bit ticked off about that? I, I don't know, I'm, I'm sorry. But even if I say sorry, I can't be forgiven. If it is that one thing, it's a bit of an awkward thing. And yet, like, we've used, um, well, some people have used that to bash other people over the head with. Um, so, is there really something so bad that Jesus dying on the cross and saying, Father, forgive, and it wouldn't be forgiven? Even if Jesus is asking you to be forgiven. Is there something worse than people nailing Jesus to the cross and mocking him? And then somehow Jesus on the cross cannot forgive that thing. Is there something that the infinite, unfailing love of God cannot deal with? It seems to be. So what I'd say, um, so what makes it unforgivable, first of all, is the idea that people are looking at what God is actually doing. So Jesus is healing by the Spirit, and they're saying Jesus is doing the work of the devil. So they're calling the Holy Spirit an agent of Satan, essentially, right? (coughs) And it's just wrong-headed thinking. So if we see someone doing something good, healing a man with a withered hand and the synagogue on, you know, in front of everybody, oh, that's got to be the work of the devil. So obviously... Well, we'll agree that it's a good thing, but you must have a devil, right? So this is kind of where the, the unforgivable, uh, unforgivable sin, Harry Potter in my head. Maybe that's the unforgivable sin. Um, so they th- they're so wrong-headed that they think they're doing the work of God by denouncing somebody who's doing the work of God. So this is what Jesus is saying. So the teachers of the law see Jesus on the cross as a fitting judgment, as a blasphemy. These people are so wrong-headed that when they see Jesus crucified, they say, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. He can't be the Messiah if he can't get off the cross. They do not see that it's the reconciliation of all things by the power of God. The reason why they can't be forgiven is because they're so wrong-headed, they don't know that they need to be forgiven. Yeah. Has Jesus forgiven them? Yeah. Yes, he has. Jesus has forgiven all things. Jesus has reconciled all things to himself. Okay, uh, in Corinthians, right? Um, so are they forgiven? Mm. Do they know that they're forgiven? Yeah. 
No. They're so wrong-headed about everything that they can never be forgiven because they actually think they're doing a good thing by opposing the forgiveness of God. So are they forgiven? Yes. Do they think they are? They didn't even know that they needed to be. So that was just an aside. So let's uh, bring this into land. Exclusion and inclusion. Whenever you start to draw lines of exclusion, whatever they may be, be careful because you might find yourself on the wrong side of your own lines. Are you excluded by Jesus? No. But you find yourself, the judgment that you've made on those other people will come back and bite you in the butt. Okay? Bottom line. By your own logic of exclusion, you will be on the wrong side of the line. This doesn't mean that Jesus excludes you, but it does mean that you've placed yourself somewhere where you've removed yourself from the face of Jesus that can be found in the people you're trying to exclude. Jesus says, whatsoever you've done unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. So apparently, we can find Jesus in really odd places. So there's something of Jesus that we can discover in Donald Trump, in Labour Party supporters, in Conservative Party supporters, in the Muslims or Sikhs or militant Muslims or paedophiles or whatever. Apparently, we can find Jesus there. And that's a part of Jesus that we've never discovered before because none of you are that. So as soon as we say they're out, I have actually denied that there's more of Jesus that I can discover. Jesus is the radical who includes everyone who is excluded. He deliberately does it, doesn't he? All throughout his ministry in the Gospels, who can I think of that is going to offend these guys the most? Oh, well, let's say lepers. Yep. Demonised people. Yep. Romans. Yep. Women. Yes. Women from Samaria. Yep. Canaanites. Yep. Who am I going to cheese off? The guys who think they're in already. Jesus is the radical who includes everyone who is excluded. Does inclusion mean acceptance of everything that they stand for and do? No. Jesus, with the prostitute, got into the dirt with her, not into bed with her. And he told us to go sin no more. He doesn't issue a universal blank check saying, you're in, you're fine, you don't have to do anything. Nope. He says you're in, but when you live in this kingdom, you will be transformed. Be transformed. Inclusion does mean that everyone can come freely to the throne of grace in a time of need. Everyone can come to the waters and drink at no cost. Everyone is included when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. So that means that everyone's included in the forgiveness part, and it also means that we're also included in that they have no clue what they're doing part. Jesus is always found with and in the outsiders. When you find people that you wish to exclude, those that disagree with you, those that rile you up the wrong way, those who believe wrongly, vote wrongly, speak wrongly, look wrongly, come from the wrong place, then look very carefully, because that's probably the Jesus you need to start getting to know. So I've discovered, um, I can get on quite well with, uh, you know, reaching out to the poor. I could probably get on quite well with reaching out to people who have different political ideas for me. The people that I really hate are those idiots that drive BMWs where their seats are reclined like this and they drive at like 60 mile an hour outside of school and they, they barely make it to stop at traffic lights when my wife and my child are walking across. They're the people I really hate. And you know what? 
The challenge for me is to find something in my heart that says, don't smack them in the face. See if you can see the face of Jesus. That is the challenge for me. You were once an outsider. You were once on the outside looking in. Of something. Whether it be, whether we get all Christian and spiritual and say it was the kingdom of God. I was an outsider of the kingdom of God, but now I'm inside. You were the outsider of some clique. You were, you, at some point, you were the one on the rough end. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it says, you were once slaves in Egypt. Therefore, look after the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. That's, that's a reoccurring theme in Deuteronomy. You were once the people that suffered. Therefore, look after the suffering. And everybody, once you get to know their story, is suffering. So, how does this relate to Barnabas? Uh, Barnabas stood with Paul, the persecutor of the church. How risky is that inclusiveness? Mm-hmm. Jesus stood with the tax collector. How risky is that inclusiveness? In fact, the people that Jesus stood with meant that he ended up going to the cross because he was crucified by the people trying to keep the status quo. But then look at the, the particular outsider for Barnabas. What did he go on and do? He became the, the apostle to the outsiders. Peter was the apostle to the Jews, the insiders. But, uh, Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles, the outsiders. So by standing with the outsider, what did Barnabas set in motion? He says in Hebrews 13, uh, Always be hospitable, because unknowingly you will have entertained angels. We find the face of Jesus as we engage with those that we wish to exclude. And that is the heart of Barnabas really, isn't it? Amen.